So this morning we are finally starting off this series in Revelation. Uh, been looking forward to this and dreading it all at the same time. Hopefully you've been looking forward to it. Revelation is uh, apparently, from what I read recently, uh, Revelation is one of the most requested studies in American churches, and it's also the study that uh, Christian ministers are least likely to undertake because it's a challenge. It's, it's not an easy one. It's, it's difficult. Revelation is mysterious. It is mysterious in that it is filled with all kinds of bizarre imagery that is sometimes difficult for us to understand. But it's also mysterious in that we've had a lot of stories told to us about Revelation, not necessarily from <laughs> Revelation, but maybe inspired by Revelation. Uh, some Christians are absolutely obsessed with Revelation. They spend an inordinate amount of time in it. They develop some very specific narratives, specific ideas about what Revelation is saying to us, and they hold to those ideas very, very tightly. And if you've ever been through a study of Revelation before, you've probably heard of something called the four major views. The four major views are actually of the millennium, not of the Revelation as a whole, but of the, the, the millennium, which is this one piece of, of Revelation. And as one piece of Revelation, it often gets inflated as if it was the whole point of the text. And I think it gets inflated that way because we sort of tie the... Uh, the millennium to our timeline. We want to know what impact the events of Revelation are going to have on us, how they're going to impact us, when they're going to impact us. And a lot of times that comes down to people's different understanding of the millennium. These views, interestingly enough, are often developed in great detail and in all honesty, let me just put on my critical hat here for a minute. In all honesty, they are often developed with very scant biblical reference. So the information is not always there, but we somehow manage to come up with it anyway. And part of the reason that Christian teachers are often able to tell us thing about things about Revelation without really much biblical support and get us to believe them is because very few, whether outside the church or inside the church, very few read Revelation assuming that they'll be able to understand it. And so we accept what understanding we're given by, by others. Uh, consequently, a lot of people in our culture today have more information about Revelation that comes from horror movies that they've watched than from actually reading the Bible. And in the church in the 90s, uh, Christian uh, fiction writers started to recognize that this whole genre of literature and film that's all based on these peculiar images from Revelation and they decide, well, we should get in on the act. And so we start writing literature about end times that rather than clarifying things in a lot of ways, 
adds to the confusion because now we've just added another layer of narrative and people don't know where scripture leaves off and where the fictional narrative begins. It's my assumption coming into this that none of this is really the point of Revelation. That we are very often led down a road that it doesn't really matter that much uh, in terms of what Revelation is really all about. That some of these things have not only not clarified the point, but they've even obscured the point. It's also my assumption that if there is a simple explanation for understanding something that happens in Scripture, it's probably the best and most likely explanation. Now, not everyone agrees with me on that, but that's my assumption, and I'm just a spare warning coming into this. If we're going to understand what's happening in Revelation, first off, we need to understand that this is a particular, particular genre of church literature. And the genre is something we call apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is often very, very strange. It's a very strange form of literature, but it is a form. It, ha it takes a particular form. And there's some things, some, some general statements, some general understanding that we can have about what apocalyptic literature is. So if we start in Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses, it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants which, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So one of the first things we need to understand about apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature is a revelation in dream form. If you look at some of the older versions, some of them actually title this book the Apocalypse of John rather than the Revelation. Apocalypse and Revelation basically mean the same thing. Ap apocalypse has come to mean, in our culture, terrible things, terrible end-time events. Uh, complete destruction is an apocalypse. But apocalypse, literally in the Greek, just means things revealed. It means revelation. The two words are interchangeable. This apocalyptic literature is specifically a revelation that comes in the form of a dream. So this is what John says here in his opening statement, that he, it, these, these things that he has seen have come to him in this dream form. In other words, he doesn't go, his spirit, he says, I see these things in spirit. His spirit doesn't go to heaven. The angels come to him and they imbue his spirit with this imagery. In other words, he's dreaming these things. It is an inspired dream. Understand that a fair bit of biblical prophecy comes in this form. We have lots of Bible stories about weird dreams and their interpretations. And, and those are sources of prophecy. They're sources of information. Uh, 
everything that John sees on the Isle of Patmos is this dream. When we recognize that this type of literature is referencing a dream vision, it aids our interpretation. For one thing, there is a lot of symbolism. Understand that going into this, that we are interpreting this, assuming that there is a great deal of symbolism because dreams contain symbols which are then interpreted. So if we go back through biblical history, for instance, Joseph has a dream in which sheaves are bowing down. They don't represent literal sheaves, they represent his brothers bowing down before him at some point down the road. When the Pharaoh dreams of lean cows that come out of the Nile River and eat up the fat cows, it's not a dream about cows, it's a dream about years of famine. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when Daniel dreams during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar about the statue, it's about the empires of the world that are to come. This apocalyptic literature reveals things that could that could not otherwise be known. Which is, uh, I, I suppose, in general, a way of saying that it's uh, prophetic. When we think about prophetic messages, we think about the future. Because those are the parts of those messages that are, that are most fascinating to us. The idea that somebody could tell us what the future is is very appealing to us because we don't like not knowing. But the reality is prophecy contains images and ideas and themes that come from the future. It contains pr prophetic words about what will happen, but it's also much more expansive than that. Prophetic involves not just the future, it involves God's plan. It involves God's working and God's purposes, and all of these things are revealed to the readers of Revelation. And that's part of the reason it uses the bizarre imagery that it does. Understand that God is trying to reveal godly things to our human minds. And so he uses images that are at least vaguely familiar to us. Things, things that hopefully we will be able to grasp uh, ideas, topics, and themes that are literally beyond our understanding. And so continuing in verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So one of the things uh, now that we need to understand about this type of literature is that it is not bound in time as we perceive it. This is the Godhead, literally the Godhead, greeting John. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit saying, Welcome, John, 
to this vision. Uh, the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is and was and is to come. A title that will be repeated multiple times in different ways throughout the text. This is characteristic of apocalyptic literature and of the Godhead itself. It is eternal. It is not bound by time in the way that we are bound by time. We occupy time temporarily, and we occupy time in a linear fashion from point A to point B. God occupies all of time. He is in all of time. He exists out of time. And so these visions will represent the past, the present, the immediate future, and the distant future. And sometimes they'll represent all of that at the same time. Part of why we struggle to understand all of that is because we just don't exist in time the same way that God does. Not only, then, is this about the present and about the history and about the future, there is also this sense of recurrence. What we say is history repeats itself, right? Sort of a common adage for us, history repeats itself. That's one of the reasons we, we strive to learn history. We don't have to repeat the mistakes of the past. History repeats itself, which is essentially a way of saying humanity tends to get itself into the same pickles over and over again. Evil tends to do the same kind of evil work over and over again. And so some of these images, some of these predictions about things that will happen, will happen multiple times. We see that in when we read in Daniel. Some of the things that are predicted in Daniel happen multiple times throughout history, and they're even referenced in Scripture. This is that happening yet again. And so there is that sense of the recurrence of history some of these things might have a present manifestation. Some of them might have a near future manifestation. Some of them might have a far future manifestation, all stemming from the same imagery. Its numbers usually have symbolic significance. Now, already we've encountered the number seven twice. So buckle your seatbelt because we will encounter seven many, many times as we work through Revelation 7 is the, the most common number in Revelation, and 7 is a number that is associated with completeness, with perfection, with shalom, with peace. And all we need to really do to understand that is go back to the principle of Sabbath, and Sabbath is based on the creation, the six days of creation, and the seventh day is a day of rest. And so from that point forward, the entire calendar is based on groups of seven, seven days. The seventh day is the Sabbath day. It is the perfect day. It is the day of rest, the day of peace, the day of shalom. The seventh year is a Sabbath year. So every seven years, let the fields lie fallow. We don't, uh, we don't labor the way we do the other six years. It's a year of shalom. The Jubilee comes after seven Sabbath years. So seven times seven is this perfect time when basically the entire economy of Israel is scheduled to reset itself. 
Incidentally, we don't know how often Jubilee was actually practiced, but a lot of economists agree that it basically represents an the, only, the world's only economic model where there's no permanent poverty. Kind of remarkable. God gave us that. We haven't been all that good about using it. It talks here about seven spirits. That's a reference to the Spirit of God. It's kind of a weird way to talk about the Spirit of God. Why are there seven of them? It seems to be a reference to the many, the many functions of God's Holy Spirit and that they are all united, they are all perfected before the throne. And we get this largely from the prophet Isaiah, because when Isaiah talks about the Holy Spirit, he gives the Holy Spirit seven titles or seven jobs. It is the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so the seven spirits are all the aspects of the Holy Spirit united. We know this because the seven spirits are greeting John along with the rest of the Godhead. There are seven churches to which this is directed. The seven churches are actual churches. Churches that John had a relationship with and churches that are part of the ancient world in, a, in an area called Asia Minor that is uh, now modern-day Turkey. So these are actual congregations and yet also probably representative because since there are seven, it's sort of saying this is the perfect representation of the church, specifically the church within the Roman Empire. And at this point, the, church, the Roman Empire is so expansive that it's hard to even think of what churches exist outside of the Roman Empire. So it's directed to all the churches in the Roman Empire, and seven, incidentally, was also a very important number for the Romans. Rome is the city built on seven hills. The original ancient city was built on seven hills, and in between those seven hills, that formed the boundaries of the city. In many ways, what Revelation does is it holds up the seven churches in opposition to or in comparison to Rome itself. And so it really is a letter directed to um, the churches that are under the influence of Rome and in many ways contrasts itself with all of the claims of Rome. And so in this announcement, the people are told, not only is their king, Jesus, the king over all the kings of the earth, which would have been very offensive to, to the Roman emperor. Not only is Jesus the king over your emperor and every other king of earth, but we have set up for you, Jesus has set up for you a kingdom and made you priests within that kingdom. Contrast this with the empire of Rome and the paganism of Rome. You are a kingdom and priests of the Lord Jesus Christ. goes on in verse 10. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, 
dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So we've said that this is a revelation in dream form. We also need to understand that it depends upon dream imagery and dream logic. You know, there's things that make sense when you're dreaming that don't make sense in, in real life, right? Though the dream here is an inspired vision, it's still a dream. And in many ways, has all the weirdness of the weirdest dream that you've ever had. It's not just the timeline that is affected by the logic of this dream. It is also the place. You can be in one place and suddenly be in another place. It is the characters. They change rapidly. And then there's strange turns of phrase. Like John says, he turns to see the voice. When I was a kid, I had a recurring nightmare. My nightmare was I would be playing out in my neighborhood in Dyer Road in Prunedale, California. And a gorilla would appear and chase me back to the house. Happened over and over and over again. Had this dream constantly. And it would change you know, ever so slightly. Sometimes my sister would be there. She was completely useless, I'm telling you. Did not do anything to protect me. Felt safe until the gorilla showed up, and then she just... And had all the aspects of the weirdness of a dream. You know, there's, there's, there's that experience you've probably had. You're running from something in a dream that terrifies you, and it's like you're running in place, or you're running in quicksand. It's just like, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere, and this... This gorilla is gaining on me. And for some reason, I always went to the back patio door, sliding glass door, which was the most difficult door to operate. Just fighting the door, trying to get in, and I'd always wake up right before the gorilla got there. Had that dream all the time. Now, if you look at that dream, now I trained as a counselor, so you look at that dream from a therapeutic perspective, it's really not that difficult sort of a generalized anxiety expressed in an object of fear and probably way too many episodes of Gilligan's Island because that's what I did. The dream imagery in Revelation is more complex, infinitely more complex than a child's recurring nightmare. It is profound and powerful Revelation gives us some familiar symbols and then some symbols that are very difficult to interpret, very difficult to understand. So we have in, in this passage, we have uh, the Son of Man, we have Jesus walking around. He's got bronze feet that are glowing as if they've been in a furnace. He's got white hair. He's got eyes like fire. He's got a sharp 
double-edged sword emerging from his mouth while he's talking to us. Now, the sharp double-edged sword is one of the only symbols that's really clear because we're familiar with that symbol. The Word of God is a sharp double-edged sword, and so it's the Word of God emerging from Jesus' mouth in this literal uh, depiction in this dream. John is, of course, the one who told us that Jesus is the Word and was in the beginning with God. The bronze feet, uh, we're less certain about that one. Still debated is what that means, and that's not terribly unusual. If we go on in verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, here's an aspect of apocalyptic literature that comes up over and over again. It, its interpretation often requires a guide. Now, if you go back to some of the ancient dreams in the Old Testament, you will remember that when it's someone else's dream and a prophet of God is called in to interpret the dream, God gives them the information to interpret that dream. Right? Daniel interprets a lot of dreams for people. And he makes it very clear that the power doesn't come from him. It comes from the Lord. But when Daniel has his own dreams, he can't figure out what they mean. And so in Daniel's case, there's an angelic messenger that comes and explains what the dream is about. In this case, in this opening sequence here, it is the Lord himself who explains to John uh, what is happening. It's also important that we understand that this is meant to be an encouragement. When it was written, the churches in the Roman Empire are enduring the second wave of persecution. The first wave is under Nero, and that starts about 68. Nero, you'll remember, uh, most of the city of Rome burns down. And it was highly suspicious fire because it's in an area that Nero kind of wanted for himself to do this big reconstruction project, and then, ooh, mysteriously, it all burnt down. And so people were starting to wonder if Nero had done this on purpose, and they start, this rumor starts traveling around. And so in order to extricate himself from that suspicion, he blames the Christians. He, he accuses the Christians of arson. Now, they're all blamed for this big fire in Rome, and the first big wave of persecution against the Christians begins. And Nero is known for the horrific things that he does to the Christians during his reign. This letter probably is written during the second wave of persecution under a guy named Domitian. Domitian is not even really liked all that much by the Romans. He was a really hard character, uh, caused a lot of problems for a lot of people, but it's generally agreed that he initiated a time of severe persecution against both Jews 
and Christians. And where Nero had blamed them for the fire, Domitian was really good about blaming them for any sort of natural disaster that occurred. So if you had a, an earthquake, uh, if you had uh, torrential rains, if you any, it, whatever it was, you would blame the Christians. And there was a certain logic to this because the Romans participated in the worship to their gods in order to prevent bad things from happening so that their gods would treat them well. So Domitian basically said, since the Christians refuse to pay homage to our gods, they are responsible for the fact that our gods have allowed these disasters to occur or cause these disasters to occur. It's a judgment on us that comes from these uh, unfaithful Christians that are <laughs> were actually accused of being atheists because they refused to worship the pantheon of Roman gods. This is the context in which they are receiving this letter. The believers refused to bow to paganism. They refused to bow to Roman power. And there were severe consequences. There were severe consequences for standing on your faith. And so Revelation seeks to encourage these early Christians. Revelation pulls back the curtain on the spiritual realm. It reveals the plan and the purpose that God has in all of this. It allows the church, in essence, to witness God's work through these difficult times. And so the, it, it shows them the past, the present, and the future of a great cosmic spiritual battle that gives context not only to their present, but to all of history. And it paints a picture in which the believers are not just hapless bystanders in all of these events, but they are critical to God's plan. This is the source of encouragement. You see, it depicts the churches and their messengers as sources of light. They are sources of light in this dark world. The seven lamps are the churches, the Lord says. They are their own city on a hill. They are lighting the world. And there's this resounding warning that's going to come up over and over again in the next two chapters. Is basically the warning is, don't lose your light. Don't, don't allow this lampstand, don't allow the lamp, the light to be taken from you. And we, we have a hard time reading that as a positive. But understand that the gravity of the warning speaks to the nobility of the mission of the church. That what you are in this setting, as helpless as you feel, as powerless as you feel, as much as the emperor seems to dominate and control every aspect of your life, Jesus is still the Lord. He still rules everything. And what you're doing right now is shining a light into the darkness. Don't lose that. If you lose that, you lose the purpose of your suffering. Now remember what Jesus has already taught us. Suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Suffering without purpose is the worst thing that can happen to you. The seven stars, the Lord says, are the angels or the messengers. Some debate about what that means. Are they literal angels? 
Uh, some people think that they're the elders of the churches. Some people think maybe they're actually the messengers, the literal messengers that took revelation to the various churches. I kind of personally favor the, uh, the elders, the leaders of the church, because of the way that Jesus talks about this. Uh, the Lord says they are held in his right hand. This idea of seven stars, again, also has Roman significance. Because seven stars is a common symbol of Rome. It shows up on a lot of their coins. And actually, during the reign of Domitian, Domitian lost an infant son. He had an infant son that, that passed. And so what he did is he deified that son. He just sort of announced that his son had become a god. Well, there's a story in, in Roman mythology about how Zeus uh, has these nursemaids. There's actually three of these nursemaids. He has these nursemaids that are nymphs. And uh, in order to reward them for his, their service to him, he makes one of these nymphs immortal by placing her in the heavens as seven stars, the seven brightest stars of Ursa Minor. And so these seven stars are associated with becoming immortal. This is the objective, right? If you're a powerful person in Rome, you want the gods to make you immortal. And so the emperors often used this imagery of seven stars, saying what, what I really want is after I leave this life to be made immortal by the god Zeus. This is what Domitian wants for his infant son. And so he mints a coin which depicts his son as Jupiter with his hands outstretched. And guess what's above his hands? The seven stars. So here's Domitian saying, my infant son is a god and he holds the seven stars. And Revelation says, no, Jesus is the Lord, and he holds the seven stars. And incidentally, the seven stars don't have anything to do with Rome and everything to do with his church. The churches represent, understand, a small and persecuted minority. The believers reject paganism. They reject military service. They are viewed with suspicion. They are slandered. They are blamed for every bad thing that happens. They are excluded from the work guilds. They are often excluded from the marketplace, which makes it very difficult to even make a living at times. Their hardship is real, and it is driven by their faith in Jesus Christ. All they would have to do to escape all of these trials is renounce Christ, and they will not. Yet the true light, in all they face, the true light, the kingdom, the presence of the true king is walking among them and they are held in the hand of God. That being said, I have to tell you that for an encouraging letter, Revelation has ample bad news. It's filled up with what we would consider bad news. There's a lot of terrible things that are coming. The people, the Christians of the Roman Empire, much like Christians today, 
when they feel like things are getting bad, they start talking about Jesus' return and say, surely this means it's going to happen now. It's going to happen immediately because he won't let it get any worse than this. That's what they're thinking. And a lot of them expected Jesus to come very soon, to come during their lifetime, and he hadn't come. And things have gotten really bad, and people have been martyred. And it's really hard to live your faith in this context of the Roman Empire. And there's this terrible persecution taking place. And why doesn't Jesus just return? And the revelation letter comes along and basically says to them, buckle your seatbelts. Because there's a lot of trial yet to come. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he'll come on a cloud, and everyone will see it, and the whole world will be humbled before him. But before that happens, there's a lot of things that are going to take place. Not, not necessarily the encouragement that they're looking for. Not the encouragement that we imagine when we think about encouragement. It requires of them patient endurance. Now, we have a hard time understanding how Revelation then could be a letter of encouragement because we have sort of this American religion of positivity that er everything is good. It's all good. We, we just, we just, as long as we can stay positive, everything's going to be all right. Positivity in America is the highest form of spirituality, but it is an anemic spirituality, an anemic religion, because it is based more on a denial of reality than on reality itself. We just don't speak of evil. We just don't speak of sin. We just don't speak of trial, and it'll all magically disappear. And so what do we do? We try to speak positivity into our terrible life choices. We speak platitudes into our own pathways of self-destruction. I want us to understand as we get into this study that the encouragement of Revelation is based in real things. It's not based in some positive attitude that we can develop to counter the negativity of the world. It is based in the reality that trials will come, and they won't even be the stupid trials that we elevate and treat as if they are more than they are. They won't be our sort of first world problems that we like to complain about. They'll be real. They'll be significant. And they'll be trials based on our adherence to the faith. Now, that is difficult for us as American Christians to understand because we've largely been nurtured on this notion that if we're faithful, God will remove all the obstacles, that he will make everything good for us. Revelation makes no such promise. Revelation says if you adhere to the faith, you might actually be called upon to be faithful right up to the point of death. And that's not what we think of as encouraging. But it is the only real encouragement. Because it's saying in spite of whatever you'll face because of me, you still have victory in spite of how hard it might get, in spite of how ugly the world around you might turn, you still have victory. That's the real encouragement. Not that you get to skip all the hard stuff. That's, that's kind of the interpretation of Revelation that we're familiar with and, and favorable toward. 
is that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pull all the Christians out of this mix and they'll get to skip all the hard stuff. That is not what Revelation says. Revelation says your life in Christ in the context of a broken and dark world could be very difficult and it might get more difficult than it is right now. But I am with you and you will overcome. This is not this is not an encouragement that is aimed at the things that we suffer because of our own ignorance and immorality. And let's face it, a lot of what we suffer in life we've brought upon ourselves. This is not about that. The the truth is The more we follow Jesus, the more we escape our own ignorance and and immorality, the better those parts of our life will be. But we'll still suffer. We'll just be suffering for Jesus. Our suffering will have purpose. It, It won't be just because we were stupid. It'll be because we were faithful. This is about suffering for being righteous in an unrighteous world. And it is a reality that we need to grapple with. Because we've been playing this positivity game in our country, and it isn't working. We've been pretending that things are okay when they're not okay, and it isn't working. And if we can't find a better way through Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what it means for St. James. It means more families will be dashed on the rocks. It means we'll bury a lot more kids. It means we'll send a lot more young people to prison or into addiction. There is something better. And that better is in Jesus Christ. That better is not in escaping the trials of this world. That better is in facing the trials of this world with Christ and overcoming The overriding message of Revelation is this. Overcome through Jesus Christ. No matter how weird it gets, no matter how bizarre the images get, no matter how confused you are by the narrative, no matter how frustrated you are with encouragement that doesn't sound like encouragement, understand that the baseline message, the overriding message of everything in this whole letter is overcome through Jesus Christ. It reveals the trials that are to come, the trials that will come for believers, the trials that can come for us even today. It reveals the grand spiritual battle. It reveals that in that plan, God has purpose. In that plan, we as the church have a mission that we are important God's plan, and that whatever we have to suffer, there will be meaning in our suffering, and for that, we have hope. Most important, it's going to tell us that Jesus is a victorious king, and that we are held in his hands. 
that he is coming back. And because of all these things, because of the truth of all of these things, we can overcome 